0: This is the History of the World podcast with me Chris Hasler and this is Volume 1 The Prehistoric World Episode 14 A Summary of the Paleolithic Age Welcome to a special episode of the History of the World podcast. Sometimes, if you buy a book on the history of the world, this is the bit that they miss out, the bit before the agricultural revolution. During the first 13 podcasts of the History of the World podcast, we have told many stories relating to all manner of things related to our evolution. But what does it mean when we put it all together? And what things have we missed out? Possibly the first hominins appeared around 6.5 million years ago with those mentioned in episode 1 of the podcast. The genera we refer to are Sahelanthropus, Aurorin and Ardipithecus all of which we believe to be bipedal which is a development which happened long before humans became human. We put a date of around 4 million years ago for Australopithecus. Australopithecus was the main focus of episode 2, mainly due to the fact that it is eponymous with the wider group of animals called Australopithecines. Australopithecines are widely thought of as the animals that lived on the planet before humans came along and replaced them. So they must be human ancestors, right? Aurorin at 6 million years ago dates earlier than Australopithecus, but its hands more closely resemble modern human hands, so Australopithecus could actually be a failed evolutionary experiment that went extinct. We just don't know enough yet, but it does demonstrate that sometimes our first scientific assumptions can turn out to be incorrect. We now believe that Australopithecines were likely to be the first stone tool producers, with the Lamequian tool culture appearing to emerge in Kenya just over 3 million years ago, something we highlighted right at the end of episode 5. This led to the Oldowan tool culture, which emerged. Just before the evolution of Homo habilis at just over 2 million years ago. Homo habilis was the subject of Episode 3 of this podcast. Older WAN tools have led us to believe that meat was becoming a much more relevant part of the hominin diet, something discussed in Episode 12. One of the last Australopithecines to cling onto existence on planet Earth was. Paranthropus with its huge grinding teeth suitable for its tough herbivorous diet it is thought to have existed as late as 1.2 million years ago by this time we know that humans were developing quickly despite the paranthropines still existing from 2 million years ago we begin to see the emergence of homo ergaster and homo georgicus two species closely linked to Homo erectus, which was the feature of episode 4. Homo erectus fossils and artefacts have been claimed to have been found that date back 1.5 million years, but there is an argument to say that a lot of them, especially the ones found in the Far East, are more likely to date to around 1 million years ago. One thing is for certain, and that is, by 1.5 million years ago, the Oldowan tall culture have made way for the more advanced Acheulean tool culture, and with this we see fire being used by hominins. The deliberate use of fire, as in hominins known to have complete control of fire, can only be proved from around 800,000 years ago. By this time we can establish that humans have moved out of their heartland Africa and were now colonising Asia. As far as the Far East and Southeast Asia in the form of Homo erectus, and in Europe in the form of Homo antecessor. The Earth's magnetic field switched, and the North Magnetic Pole has remained at the same polar region right up until today. We can now turn our attention towards Homo heidelbergensis, a very pivotal species of human. He unfortunately did not receive his own episode, but we did talk about him quite enthusiastically during episode 7. We put a date on the emergence of Homo hydropagensis at around 600,000 years ago, and we believe that it evolved to become Homo neanderthalensis, which is Neanderthal man. Neanderthal heartland is Europe, and it is here. That we see significant advances in tool making the tools move from the Acheulean culture into the Mousterian culture we see wooden spears and bifacial stone tips which are now being worked with bones and antlers to create precision stone tips which would later be used as part of a composite tool with the stone tip being hafted onto a wooden handle using twine or an adhesive made from tree tar or plant resin, or maybe even a combination of both, although this is unclear from the archaeological records. We do believe, however, that the Neanderthals would have understood the benefits of fire hardening their wooden spears so that they could be much more effective and long-lasting as a consequence. A version of Homo heidelbergensis is believed to have existed in Africa and evolved to become Homo sapiens, the modern human being. DNA analysis has been vital in advancing our abilities to work out what truly happened in the prehistoric world. It is believed that modern humans begin to appear around 300,000 years ago in Africa and that possibly 200,000 years ago a woman existed who was the ancestor to each and every one of us here today, alive on the planet. We refer to this woman as Mitochondrial Eve, and we discussed her in episode 9 of the podcast. One thing that we do believe about both Neanderthals and modern humans is that they were both expert hunters, and the tools and remains of hunted animals at key fossil sites demonstrate this. Both species must have hunted in cohesive hunting groups of many individuals demonstrating a higher level of communication skills which we explored the evolution of in episode 6. With the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa as described in episode 9 we can see more widespread use of pigments such as ochre and the first artefacts that demonstrate a somewhat artistic manner becoming part of the human psyche. Homo sapiens would doubtlessly take this embryonic artistic inclination around the world as it began to colonise areas away from Africa. Another feature of Homo sapiens that is widely speculated about is that populations showed more of a leaning towards marine mammals and fish as part of their diet. Indeed, there is evidence to show that shells that were likely having their contents eaten were then being decorated with ochre colours and modified to make jewellery or clothing decorations. It is now that I want to discuss a subject that has not come up in our previous podcast but it is something discussed in relation to the modern human migration and population of the world. We believe that Homo sapiens could have ventured east from the Levant around 80,000 years ago, beginning the colonisation of the Far East, Southeast Asia and ultimately Oceania. However, a large-scale event was about to occur. The 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 Toba Super Eruption The Toba Super Eruption was a supervolcanic eruption that happened around 74,000 years ago. The location of the super eruption was on Sumatra in modern day Indonesia. The eruption has been given a score of 8 on the Volcanic Explosivity Index. 8 is the highest possible score, so it's fair to say that it was quite serious, and probably a good excuse to reach for those brown trousers if you were anywhere nearby. Super-eruptions of this nature have wide-ranging consequences on the sensitive balance of the Earth, its atmosphere, and subsequently, its climate. Some have claimed that the super-eruption and its aftermath effects almost drove humans to extinction, Quite a serious claim that deserves further investigation and a look at the evidence. The theory gained traction in the 1990s. Toba erupted and there was a volcanic winter on a global scale causing a bottleneck in the human population. Predictions state that the global temperature dropped by at least 3 degrees Celsius and an ice age was triggered. Indeed, there was a drop in global temperature recorded at around this time. It is predicted that something just shy of 3,000 cubic kilometers of magma was dispersed, which is enough to bury the United States of America under 12 inches of material. However, more recent studies have downplayed the impact of the eruption the studies were made on the continent of Africa and demonstrated that small fragments of cryptotephra exist that are likely to be the result of the volcanic eruption's effect on the silica in its rocks. Cryptotephra are microscopic pieces of glass. By looking at fossils and artifacts surrounding the cryptotephra, scientists can find little evidence of an effect on human population. Also, they have identified no apparent difference to the vegetation in Africa at this time. There are remnants of Toba's explosion as far afield as Greenland and Antarctica. We can recognise the unusual sulphates in the ice cores. Ice core study is something we discussed in detail in episode 8. So it appears that although the Earth experienced a general effect on the climate as a result of the super-eruption, it does not appear to have had a major impact on human populations. This is still an open debate, but one very interesting point is that our small friend from episode 10, The Hobbit, otherwise known as Homo floresiensis, seemed to survive the drama despite only living 1,500 miles from the super-eruption. There is still a lot of study to be conducted before we reach a definitive conclusion though. Whatever the consequences, by the time of the Toba super eruption, Homo Neanderthalensis was well established in Europe and possibly conducting ceremonial burials of their dead and on the edge of the Neanderthal range in the Levant they were encountering and quite possibly procreating with Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens expanded their range eastwards where they encountered Denisovans and, once again, procreated to a degree before heading southeast and making the journey across the East Indies to colonise Australia and New Guinea as other populations made it over to the Far East to colonise China. This period was covered in episode 10. Then at a point at around 40,000 years ago we saw Homo sapiens venture into the heart of the Neanderthal range in Europe. There was a possible interaction of technologies where the Neanderthal Mousterian tool culture was added to by the Homo sapiens or Ignatian tool culture. However, the coexistence of the two species appears to be quite short-lived, as Homo sapiens seem to have pushed Neanderthals into the corners of Europe where they would die out something explored in episode 11. However, the whole scenario coincides with another natural disaster, the The Campanian-Ignimbrite eruption. eruption. The guess is that this volcanic eruption happened in Naples, in modern-day Italy, around 39,000 years ago. Unlike Toba, which measured at 8 on the VEI, The Campanian eruption hit a seven. Don't be mistaken though as this is still serious enough to reach for those brown trousers again. The distribution of debris into the atmosphere is believed to have travelled as far east as central Russia and across the Mediterranean Sea hitting the coast of Africa. However, it is not believed to have significantly impacted areas north and west of the eruption with nearly as much intensity, so it is not thought to have caused the extinction of the Neanderthals. Regardless of the fact that we believe that many Neanderthals were living in areas not directly affected by atmospheric debris, we still believe through studies and analysis that temperatures decreased to a significant level that caused additional pressures on a lot of the hominin populations. Certainly, all populations are likely to have experienced sulfur dioxide infused acid rain, which wouldn't do anyone any favours. What I do think from all my studies is that there appears to be a recent general leaning towards both of these eruptions not necessarily being as responsible as once thought for decimating populations. However, it certainly did seriously affect them. If nothing else, Toba would have forced the strong to survive, and certainly there was an expansion of hominin migrations and cultures in the aftermath, almost as if the best of the best were saved in order for the human race to dramatically improve as a race. Campania may have had a similar effect, possibly accelerating what would already perhaps be an inevitable extinction of the Neanderthals. Nonetheless, these two eruptions have been heavily studied in relation to their effects on human population and therefore deserve mention in our podcast series. After Neanderthal extinction, Homo sapiens cultures flourished. Aurignacian technologies emerged, flourished, and were supplanted by more modern technologies such as the Gravettian salutrian and magdalenian hunter-gatherer lifestyles became more advanced as explored in episode 12 and european art became prominent with the development of more complex cave paintings and sculptures something we explored in detail in episode 13 while all of this was going on humans had colonized japan and then moved north to beringia where they were able to cross into and colonise all of the Americas from north to south by around 15,000 years ago. This coincides with the last glacial maximum possibly around 20,000 years ago. Since then we have seen the beginnings of an interglacial which has cut off the land bridge between America and the rest of the world, creating what would later become conceptualised as the new world and the old world respectively. As I think I have mentioned previously in this podcast series, I intend to separate the History of the World podcast into volumes. Volume 1 is the prehistoric world and subsequent volumes will tackle the ancient world, the classical world, the medieval world, the early modern world, the world of empires and the modern world that we live in. Volume 1 is not over but we've reached a midpoint where we can look to conclude the story of human ancestors and the first anatomically modern humans. We now need to look forward to the emergence of the first civilizations which existed from around 10,000 BCE to 3,000 BCE. Before we do, let us explore some of the other technological advances so that we can really tie together the material from the last two podcasts and enter the second half of Volume 1 with real confidence. Upper Upper Paleolithic Paleolithic Cultures cultures. The Upper Paleolithic refers roughly to the period between 50,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago and represents an apparent period of rapid cultural progress of Homo sapiens. This can be compared to the Middle Paleolithic which preceded the Upper and started around 300,000 years ago to coincide with the emergence of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. The Lower Paleolithic started around 3.3 million years ago with the emergence of the Lamequin stone-tool culture and is something we devoted much time exploring in Episode 5. Wikipedia lists around 30 different types of culture associated with the Upper Paleolithic and to explore them all would be very laborious and confusing. So I will condense it down to just the four which I previously mentioned in an attempt to make this section more meaningful to us humble amateur knowledge gatherers. At around 33,000 years ago the European Homo sapiens Aurignacian culture was replaced by the Gravettian culture. Named after a type site, La Gravette, in the Dordogne department of modern France. Stone tools were being created with more of a hammer and chisel approach. Where the hammer would likely be a hammer stone and the chisel would likely be a bone or an antler. And the result from the core stone would be a worked blade as opposed to a simple flake it does also appear that there was a climate change as the Ice Age really started to head towards the glacial maximum and humans appeared to become more mobile in their efforts to gather food. Meat would have been more of a focus as vegetation would have not grown with as much abundance in a cooling climate. Therefore the hunting weapons notably advanced with mentions of bow and arrow nets and even boomerangs. It seems that marine food was also quite popular during this period. Gravettian culture is noted for its relatively high production of Venus statuettes as a side note. The Salutrian culture appeared to replace the Gravettian around 21,000 years ago and is named after the type site at Salutre in the Séan et Loire department of modern France. The salutrian is restricted more to Western Europe, as in the East of Europe the culture advanced but was distinct. We see more evidence of retouched stone tools, which in a very basic sense is the modification of an older tool. Either the improvement of an archaic tool or the alteration Of an existing worn out tool into a tool with an alternative purpose. The Magdalenian culture, named after Abri de la Madeleine, a rock shelter back in the Dordogne department of modern France, is suggested to have emerged around 17,000 years ago. It is thought to be somewhat exclusive to modern France and the Iberian Peninsula. The type of tools being manufactured for hunting were becoming increasingly intricate and specialised. We see the comparative proliferation of harpoons and burins, which are chisel-shaped tools. This would mean that more types of animal were becoming viable prey for the humans, so the larger mammals that were being turned to as prey as the Gravettian advance were becoming less favoured due to the human skill in catching smaller prey becoming easier due to the technological progress. Clothing Clothing. Tools were not just useful for hunting, but they were also useful for other practical needs. Now, you may be forgiven for thinking that the best way to find out when humans started wearing clothing would be by looking for archaeological evidence of material or fabric, the actual clothes themselves. However, it appears that we can find out more by studying the specific evolution of an animal other than a human. The animal, the body louse. The body louse is a type of louse, which in turn is a type of insect. Lice are obligate parasites which live on the bodies of other animals where they feed on their blood and reproduce. Humans have their own lice whose binomial name is Pediculus humanus. The useful thing for us to know is that there are two different subspecies of Pediculus humanus, the head louse and the body louse. The body lice differ from head lice in that body lice carry human diseases whereas head lice do not. However, another important difference is that head lice lay their eggs on the human scalp, whereas body lice lay theirs on the seams of clothing? Through scientific research, we believe that the head louse and the body louse share a common ancestor and diverge from one another around 100,000 years ago. So that's nice and simple, then. Humans started wearing clothes 100,000 years ago. Well, it's not really that simple. Head lice and body lice are morphologically very similar, so 100,000 years ago is a bit of an educated guess. It's very difficult to be definitive. What we do believe is that even if hominins were wearing hides on a day to day basis, then it may not have been until the Aurignacian when we start finding excavated evidence of needles made from animal bone around 20 to 30,000 years ago. So we believe that Neanderthals were making clothes by tanning skins before the arrival of modern humans around 40,000 years ago. There we see the usage of plant fibres taken from flax and nettles on a significant scale being used to weave clothing material and the bone needles being used to sew these materials together. The other evidence is from some of the contemporary sculptures being sculpted with decorative clothing, giving us a second-hand picture of what was being worn by humans in the prehistoric age. Other Uh, Paleolithic paleolithic Creations. creations. In one of the 90,000-year-old Neanderthal sites in France, we can see the beginnings of the use of plant fibres as they were twisted together to create string which undoubtedly in turn would have led to cord and rope being produced. Some scientists cite this invention as something that would have been involved in the production of boats but there is very little in the way of firm evidence to substantiate this. We believe that it is during the Gravettian culture of Europe that ceramic art first emerged. In 1925, two pieces of fired clay were discovered in Dolny Vestonice in Czechoslovakia. The site is in the modern South Moravian region of the Czech Republic. The two pieces of fired clay together constructed a clay Venus figurine. It had the typically large breasts and hips of a Venus figurine which points towards a purpose as a fertility symbol. The clay figurine appears to have been carefully sculpted perhaps using a clay and water mixture before being fire hardened. Its date of creation has been put to over 25,000 years ago and it is just one example of many clay sculptures recovered at the site. They are the oldest known ceramic articles in the world. When talking about prehistoric ceramics, it is important to speak about pottery. Pot sherds are the remnants of pottery. So while we do not expect to excavate complete pots, we do find these pot sherds, which were clearly once part of a ceramic pot. Traditionally, we have thought of the first instances of pottery to have emerged in Japan as part of the Jomon period. As such, the Jomon is the first reference period of Japanese history. Anything previous to this is referred to as the Japanese Paleolithic. The Jomon period is marked by the emergence of Jomon pottery, which emerged around 16,000 years ago not long before the beginning of the current interglacial that separated the Japanese islands from the Asian mainland, encouraging Japanese culture to travel down its own independent route. However, discoveries have since been made in a place called Xianren Cave in the Jiangxi province of modern-day China, which apparently predates the Jomon period. We actually did Mentioned this in the last podcast when talking about portable art. The potsherds date back to possibly 20,000 years ago and are thought to be the oldest evidence of pottery. This demonstrates that ceramic creations were emerging in different areas of the human world and that it is possible that the emergence of ceramics could date back a lot further in human history. We just don't have the evidence to prove it. So now we are reaching the end of this special summary episode which has given us an opportunity to explore the material of the first 13 podcasts and also to fill in some gaps that the natural subjects of each podcast may have maybe missed, but absolutely do still deserve mention if we want this podcast series to be a comprehensive history of our world. With that in mind, I do want to raise one more aspect of the Upper Paleolithic before we move on to the Neolithic or Agricultural Revolution. When we go on to exploring the beginnings of civilization, our first podcasts will be the cradle of agriculture and the spread of farming. This will lead us into talking about the domestication of many species of flora and fauna, or plant an animal to use the more common terms. However, during the previous podcast we stumbled across something very interesting while exploring the artwork of Chauvet Cave in the Ardèche department of modern day France. We found evidence of footprints of a small boy walking side by side with a wolf. As humans are from the Homo genus, dogs are from the Canis genus. The Canis genus includes wolves, jackals, coyotes and dogs and is thought to have emerged as a genus around 6 million years ago coincidentally the same time as hominins. With occupation of the Chauvet cave thought to date back over 30,000 years could this be a possible date of a relationship forming between the human and the dog? The modern domestic dog is believed to have evolved from the gray wolf, so we should initially look at the studies of wolves and dogs from a period of 30,000 years ago to see if we can find out what is going on. The footprints in Chauvet Cave demonstrate a modification in the foot which we associate with a domestic dog as opposed to a wolf. So we believe that there was such a thing as a Paleolithic dog which is distinguishable from grey wolves and Pleistocene wolves, which are other closely related wolves that were alive at the time. If we go back even further to sites that we mentioned a long time ago in this podcast series, such as Box Grove in the United Kingdom from episode 7 and Joe Godian in China from episode 4, we can determine that wolf and human hunting ranges likely overlapped with each other, between 300 and 400,000 years ago. In the Grotte du Lazare, an archaeological cave in the Alpes-Maritimes department of modern France, we can see the deliberate placement of canis skulls at the entrances of human Paleolithic shelters. This would have to be Neanderthal due to the date of the site being 125,000 years old. It is then not until we arrive in the last 35,000 years that we start seeing definitive morphological differences in Paleolithic dog remains found near human sites. It has been proposed that maybe humans were making attempts to domesticate dogs back then, even though the morphological differences do not necessarily resemble the ones we expect to see, which suggests that there was not one simple act of domestication but many different acts in many different areas that may not have ultimately been successful in their isolated cases. A discovery made of dog remains that date to over 14,000 years ago, near Bonn in the North Rhine-Westphalia state of modern Germany, is significant. The dog was deliberately buried with two humans, and we know this because the dog was covered in the same red hematite which is the same material that gives red ochre its redness, as the humans. The dog is believed to have died from canine distemper, which is a very common disease amongst dogs, and it is supposed that the dog should have died sooner had it not been cared for. All of this suggests that the dog was being considered, in some aspects, as a part of the family. The canine distemper would have likely rendered the animal useless for any practical means such as assisting the humans to hunt, for example. The humans would have likely had an emotional attachment to the animal due to all of these facts. The dog shows distinct physical characteristics that resemble domestic dogs more than wolves, showing a distinct difference from its wild cousins. So it appears that humans and dogs have lived alongside each other for hundreds of thousands of years. It appears that an understanding between the two animals may have emerged over time, which resulted in a relationship where the two species must have been interacting with each other without aggression. At this point, Some human populations around 30 to 35,000 years ago attempted to selectively breed the more tame animals to perhaps assist them in hunting exercises and maybe the dog with its natural pack mentality accepted its role in the human tribe hierarchy in a similar way that it would do in a wolf pack. Over the course of the next 20,000 years the relationship between humans and dogs would have developed into one where the dog would become a very important part of the human tribe, to the point where certain animals were treated as family by those humans who likely raised them from birth. Therefore the dog must have been the very first animal to be successfully domesticated by humans, which would have led humans to believe that if they could do it with dogs, they could do it with other animals. We will begin to explore that in more detail in the next two podcasts. Conclusions (laughs) By 12,000 years ago, the climate of the planet was changing again. The last glacial maximum from around 20,000 years ago was giving way to the current interglacial. Temperatures were rising, unlocking the water trapped in the melting ice sheets and raising the sea levels, which in turn would cut off islands such as Japan from their continental landmasses. Deserts would decrease in size and rainforest would begin to replace grassland. Humans were becoming more and more successful in the tens of thousands of years building up to this time. With their advanced technologies they were expanding and growing in population. There is indirect evidence of their success as animals appear to have been pushed out of ecosystems or morphologically changing in a way that would suggest overhunting. It is even hypothesised that humans were scorching landscapes to encourage animal species to come out into the open where they could be hunted more easily. There is clearly a view that by now humans were already altering the planet to suit their own needs in ways that would have previously been unimaginable. Shell middens gave off a wealth of information about the overhunting of species causing morphological change and the sheer amount of layers of human faecal waste at some sites also tell a similar story. Even the stone technology and production is believed to have changed the landscape as the gathering of stone is comparable to quarrying. Even before humans became civilised they were having a very significant and unprecedented effect on the world they lived in. Next time, we will explore the beginnings of the emergence of civilised society by visiting southern Asia and exploring the cradle of agriculture. Thank you once again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that podcast. We got to summarise the first 13 episodes, so, for example, if you're not interested in the Paleolithic, this could act as a good background to the period of the Neolithic. If you're interested in that, it could be a good starting point. Thanks a lot to Stephanie Goforth, who recommended the History of the World podcast on Facebook, stating very well presented, up-to-date overview of our history. She's reviewing episodes that she's already listened to just to help to absorb the information. I'm guilty of doing that with my favourite podcasts, I must admit. And she's just finished re-listening to the Ice Ages, I think that that might be because of the story of Napi being chased half the way round Canada by a massive rock. If you miss that story, go back and listen to it. Stephanie also mentions that she's looking forward to the introduction of Gobekli Tepe. Which is a Neolithic megalith, if you like. It's one of those things that's related to spirituality and religion and worship ...of some description. We're going to explore that. I did think we were going to explore that in episode 17... ...but I think I'm going to leave that till the Megalith episodes... ...which will be episode 19 and 20. Thank you very much for getting in touch with the podcast, Stephanie. A little bit of cross-promotion. We were lucky enough to be mentioned... ...on the History of Ancient Greece podcast page very kindly promoted the podcast and I think a couple of people have gravitated towards us thanks to that and thank you so much to the History of Ancient Greece podcast for their mention It's fantastic to have that support and I've listened to a few episodes of this podcast and I'll be honest, I really like it. It's a great introduction into ancient Greece and it really goes back to the roots so it looks like a very considered piece of work and it's extremely well presented. If you get the opportunity, give it a try and see what you think. You may well like it. Finally, I'm just going to mention we received an email from a gentleman called Richard Soderberg. He said just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy the podcast and look forward to each new episode. I had no prior interest in paleoanthropology but stumbled across History of the World podcast by accident. Brilliant. I'm glad that I've introduced something interesting to you that may not have been something you've thought about before. That's that's wonderful. You find the podcast to be so brainy, an area of advanced science made understandable to the layperson, but still intellectually challenging. So charming. Your voice is perfect for conveying complex topics and keeping the listener interested. I can't stand my own voice, if I'm honest, but I've, I've only got compliments about it. I don't know why. So well done. It's clear that a lot of effort goes into formulating each sentence. It has a great rhythm. I think in order to make the podcast comprehensive, you've really got to think about the listener experience. And I know I've listened to podcasts where someone talks at 100 mile an hour and you can't even keep up with what they're saying. It's absolutely useless. You've got to be clear and concise in order for the information to flow through nicely. And I hope I'm Managing to do that. The show is like a celebration of all that's great about science. Yeah, who don't love science? Well, thank you to everyone uh, that listened this week. I hope it was a well-done podcast. It really felt like the right thing to do, to summarise. Put a line in the sand where we can move forward now into the Neolithic. It's a very, very, it's very important transition And I think the material we're going to explore is just as interesting as everything we've been through. It's really been quite a pleasure to write about it. So next week, the Cradle of Agriculture. I wish you all a great week. Until next time. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please... Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.